The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 25 is what we're going to read today. And that says, a Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. All right, we're in Leviticus 25, 23 through 38. It's entitled The Year of Jubilee, Part 2. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his possession." Verse 29, if a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. But if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. However, the houses of villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession." Verse 35, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Very confusing verses, aren't they? I mean, you read them and you think, what is this talking about? We'll find out in a couple minutes. 
the many systems set in place in Israel for land, property, the produce of the land, and the like, and which are set up for the care of the people are amazing. In studying these laws in order and one at a time, we learn all kinds of intricate details about how things operated. But it's hard to actually place ourselves into the story and really see how it all fits together. The people of Israel, though, would have lived them out not one at a time, but all the time. The feasts of Israel were lived out in a continuous fashion each year. The seventh Sabbath year would be a regular part of this cycle. Within that cycle, there would also be the annual tithe, which the people set aside year by year. And from that, the tithe would be given away once every third year. Thank you. This means that there would be two such tithe years every seventh Sabbath year cycle, or a third if the tithe year fell on a Sabbath year. But... If the two happened on the same year, then there would be no reaping of the land. And so how the tithe was collected is rather difficult to determine. The Bible says nothing about that. And yet, the Lord set each one of these things down as a precept for the people to follow. If they simply followed what was required and did as they were instructed, the amount of blessing that would come upon them would have been truly remarkable. We can't place our society into what the Lord mandated for Israel, and we cannot take the precepts of chapter 25 and apply them to the functioning of our lives today. But it is such a unique system of ensuring stability that it is hard to simply ignore without giving a great breath of awe at what the Lord did for them. In Israel, Anyone who became poor had numerous ways of at least staying at a basic level and even the ability to slowly work himself out of his pit if he was simply industrious enough to do so. And eventually, even if that was just not possible, at the year of Jubilee, he could once again reclaim his land and make a clean start of life all over again. The laws of Israel found here would help considerably in relieving highs and lows of economic issues. Everything would be kept on a much more even keel because of the ingenious laws which are presented right here. And someday, an even more perfect system will be introduced for the redeemed of the Lord. How good that will be. In today's world, we are just one economic collapse away from absolute disaster, and there is no true security to be found. Wealth is a house of cards that could come tumbling down with the next major correction. So let's not put our hope in a failed system of digital readouts and shaky land deals. Our text verse comes from Ephesians chapter 1. It's verses 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Israel's being told what they are to do with their inheritance once again in today's verses. There are all kinds of interesting provisions to be looked into, and these are the laws that the people were bound to all the days of their lives. Mm -hmm. It was a regular part of life for them, just as it is for us when we go out to buy a house. We don't think of it, we just do as the law requires, and that is that. But if we consider buying land in another country, there is a lot of checking on what can and cannot be done. Failure to understand what one is getting into could result in a rather sad result. But such is not the case with the inheritance of the saints. There will be no catches, no hidden deals, and nothing that will bring about buyer's remorse. When we receive our inheritance, we will be eternally grateful for the unmerited grace which has been poured out on us through the work of another, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ how Israel could complain about the deal they got is a bit hard to imagine. They were given land and they were given it forever. And they need do nothing to keep it. If they sold it off, it would eventually come right back to them. There was never a permanent lack for those in the land. And so how much greater is our eternal inheritance? The possibilities of the universe are awaiting us. So don't have fear that the future won't be bright. It will in fact be dazzling. Until then, we are here, and we can look at what God did for Israel as an ingenious hint into what lies ahead for us. Let us be confident of our inheritance, grateful to our Lord, and willing to be attentive to the many lessons about such things which are found in His superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through His word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. 
I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is redemption of property. It's verses 23 through 34. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold permanently. The Lord now reverts to the instructions from verses 14 through 17. He had explained that this exchange of property was based upon the number of crops to be expected until the next year of Jubilee. This counting was exclusive of any Sabbath years where crops could not be harvested for a profit. To ensure that this was an understood precept, the laws of the Sabbath year were then expanded on in verses 18 through 22. Now the property laws continue to be explained. Here a special word is given which is translated as permanently, semitut. It will only be used here and in verse 30 in the whole Bible. It comes from a root meaning to destroy. The idea then is that the people are not to excise themselves from what has been ordained in the original granting of the land. In so doing, there would be a destruction of what was originally intended. In both uses of the word, it is prefixed by to. In other words, the land shall not be sold to extinction. And this is not without reason. Verse 23 continues, for the land is mine. Kili ha'aretz, for to me the land. This sets the basis for all of the dealings of Israel and any other group of people who would enter into the land. The Lord claims sovereign ownership over the land, and therefore they have no right to permanently sell what is not theirs. They only have the rights to deal with the land as he lays out, but their rights go no further. The words being placed here are a logical and necessary step in order for the next chapter to be introduced, that of blessings and that of curses. The people had already bound themselves under the law to include all such blessings and curses, but the issue of exile from the land becomes clear and understandable because of the placement of this chapter right here and this statement, for the land is mine. Israel is granted the land, but only so far as the Lord allows them to live in it. He is the Lord of the soil, and therefore all land dealings are ultimately at his will, not Israel's. A beautiful example of fundamentally misunderstanding the precept by the people is found in the book of Ezekiel. The only time that Abraham is mentioned in the entire book is in connection with the land. It says there in Ezekiel chapter 33, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, and he inherited the land. But we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. They remembered that their father Abraham had possessed the land despite being just one man. How much more then did they figure they had the right to possess it when there were many of them who had inherited the right to the land? But they failed to accept the whole scope of this tapestry. The land was given to Israel. When they were obedient, it was theirs and they could live in it. When they were disobedient, the land was theirs and they could not. It was theirs to possess, but not as an unconditional right. We saw that clearly and perfectly demonstrated by Jim's opening us in the service today about what the land of Israel looked like when the Jews were in exile. Nobody there. Nobody had the right to the land because the land belongs to the Lord and he has given it sovereignly to one group of people on this planet. The descriptions were terrifying to actually hear you read them. What the land looked like when the Jews were not in the land for the past 2,000 years. Up until they came to the land in 1948, it was void of people, it was void of trees, it was void of any reason for anybody to want that land. Verse 23 continues, For you are strangers and sojourners with me. As Lord of the soil, Israel was and is a group of tenants at will. In failure to meet the requirements of this state, they gave up their right to dwell in their allotment. Again, all of this was with the intent of securing a set and continuing inheritance which would someday lead the people to the Messiah. It is a giant fabric of intricate weavings intended for that one ultimate purpose. Verse 24, And in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land. With the things already addressed in mind, the concept of geula, or redemption, is now introduced into the Bible. It is a word which will be seen 14 times, but nine of them will be in this chapter right here. To see the practice in action, the Lord will provide two examples of it. One is in Ruth chapter 4, and one is in Jeremiah chapter 32. Because the land is the Lord's, and because the people are but temporary dwellers with right of use, 
Redemption of the property was expected. This then works into the greater theme of redemption as is found in Christ Jesus. Here in Leviticus, truths are being relayed which go backward all the way to the fall of man and forward to the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, if one of your brethren becomes poor, one of the very purposes of the land return in the year of Jubilee was to avoid a permanent state of exactly what is detailed here, which is that a fellow Israelite became muk or poor. This is a unique word found only four times in this chapter and once in chapter 27. It comes from a root meaning to become thin, and thus it signifies being impoverished. By having a return of the land, it would balance out extremes of poverty and wealth. However, poverty could come between the Jubilees, and so provisions are made for such times. Verse 25 continues, and has sold some of his possession. When times of thinness arise, a man could sell some or all of his possession in order to alleviate his plight. In fact, it is the only reason which is given for actually doing so. Outside of poverty, the law presumes that each person would retain his land. However, in such a case, it was not automatically lost until the Jubilee. Instead, the provision of geula, or redemption, was to be adhered to by the new owner. Verse 25 continues, And if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, a relative of the poor man had the full right to redeem the land which was sold. This wasn't optional, as if the new owner could say, No, I want to hold on to it. Rather, when a near relative presented the fee, the present owner was under obligation to sell back the field which he held. This is the meaning of verse 24, you shall grant redemption of the land. Verse 25 continues, then he may redeem what his brother sold. The near relative had full right to reacquire that which had been sold away. And this is seen the germ of what is later explained by Paul concerning the work of Jesus Christ. Dominion over the earth had been granted to one man. What was his name? Adam. But he had lost his right. But Christ came taking on flesh and becoming our near relative in humanity in order to perform the redemption for us. In Luke chapter 4, the devil said this to Jesus. All this authority, now this is the devil speaking, all this authority I will give to you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Jesus did not question the truth of the devil's claim. Instead, he went about using this very law given to Israel to reclaim what had been lost. In the end, he prevailed. Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. The heavenly scene itself is found in the book of Revelation. This is from Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Verse 26, Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it. If a man found sufficiency to redeem the property on his own, then the law gave provision for that as well. This verse here presupposes that any human could have potentially reclaimed the title to what Adam lost. But the sad words of Revelation chapter 5 show that such was not actually to be. No one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to even look at it. The law gave the option to all of us nonetheless. Praise God for Jesus Christ, who was able to redeem what we could not. Verse 27, Then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. The idea here is one of simple mathematics. How many years had passed since the sale? How many years had it been in the purchaser's hands? And how many years of crops were yet ahead until the Jubilee? In figuring these in, the mandatory sale price could be determined. There was no haggling, and there was no actual dispute. 
the rightful owner would receive the property back based on the law itself and his ability to meet the requirements under it. Does everybody see Jesus all over this now? The verses which seemed confusing a few minutes ago are coming to life because they all point to the redemptive work of the greatest human being that ever lived, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 28, but if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee, and in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. The words are obvious, but the beauty of them may be missed. The buyer of the land had lost nothing. He paid for the crops which lay ahead and nothing more. Therefore, he had received full for his purchase, be it five years or 45 years. And the one who had sold the land had received full compensation for the use of the land, which he lost right to during his time of absence. However, with the coming of the Jubilee, meaning the sounding of the ram's horn, the land returned to his hand once again. The playing field was level and any time of poverty was potentially gone forever. Nobody became overly wealthy, nobody was permanently poor, and the government could not usurp the rights of the people because the law held final say over the entire matter. Verse 29, if a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. As all Israel was given an inheritance of land, those who either built or purchased a house within a walled city had merited <laughs> They had merited the right to the property. How does salvation come about? By grace through faith. There is no meriting salvation. Human effort was involved in the process apart from the grace of an inheritance. This is true with the house built on inherited land, but it is the land and not the house which the Lord considers. A city with walls was a place specifically designed to promote a different type of industry than that of agriculture. There are artisans, there are business dealers, there are smiths, and there are a whole host of other things in such a city, which included all of this participation of life. The walls are made for protection, and it is a place of human effort and endeavor. If a person owned a house within such a place, a set time of redemption could take place, that was one year, and after that the property would be forever transferred to the new owner without further encumbrance. This verse here speaks of works apart from salvation. In our inheritance, no works are involved. Verse 30, but if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it. Throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. As the dwelling was never a gift of God in the first place, then it did not bear the mark of a permanent inheritance. Further, there was no danger in the confusion of tribes or families in the ownership of houses and walled cities. Because of this, such a transfer was given a set period of time to be reclaimed by the seller, but not a day after that. If after one year it was not bought back, the matter was settled forever. This verse has the Bible's last use of the word semitut, or permanently, which was introduced in verse 23. It is permanently ended, and so with finality, we can bid that word adieu. Verse 31, however, the houses of villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as fields of the country. A village without walls presupposes that the houses would be connected to the surrounding land for the purpose of agriculture. Instead of building a house on each piece of land, like often occurs, some villages are started with a set purpose of community where the inhabitants daily went out to the land of one's inheritance. Go read the book of Ruth and you'll see that happening. It is generally accepted that the later addition of walls for protection or for some other reason would not change the nature of the tie between the house and its acreage. Verse 31 continues, they may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Such houses were a part of the landed property which was given as grace at the original inheritance. They were necessary for reasonable cultivation of the land, and they were therefore released along with the land at the Jubilee, reverting to the original owner at that time. Verse 32, nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. Despite the book bearing the name of Levi. It's the book of Leviticus. The only time that the tribe is mentioned by name in the entire book of Leviticus is here in verses 32 and 33. 
Their homes, even in walled cities, are a special exemption to the rule for the redemption of houses. The reason for this is because the Levites were to have no inheritance of land among the people. The Lord is their inheritance. They were given 48 cities scattered around Israel as their dwellings. And instead of land to work, they were to be given the tithes of the common people as their inheritance. Thus, their livelihood was far from a guaranteed abundance. Instead, it was one which depended on the obedience of the people to the precept of the law which mandated the tithe. Further, if the crops of the land failed, the Levites would bear the weight of that loss as heavily as anyone, maybe more so. As these things were true, this was as much a protection from permanent poverty as it is the redemption and release of land for the common people in Israel. The Levites' homes, despite being in walled cities, were considered just as landed property to all others. They possessed the full right of redemption at any time. Verse 33, And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. You talk about a complicated verse right here. Both in the Hebrew and in scholarly commentary, this is one of the most difficult verses you're going to come across in the Bible. The Hebrew of this verse is so difficult that the variety of translations which come from it are numerous. The first clause, though, is not speaking of a purchase. That's what the New King James and the King James Version says. That is incorrect. It is not speaking of a purchase, but of the ability to redeem. It's hard to be dogmatic, but of all of the translations that I looked at, the Holman Christian Standard appears to have caught the intent. They say, whatever property one of the Levites can redeem, a house sold in a city they possess must be released at the Jubilee because the houses in the Levitical cities are their possession among the Israelites. The sale of land in Israel is tied to the produce of the land. Because the houses of the Levites are tied to the produce of the land, meaning the reception of tithes, then for the Levite, the house itself is what possesses the value. It might logically follow that the sale of the house of a Levite would be based on the same criteria as for that of land. How many years until the Jubilee? How many Sabbath years should be deducted? And so on. The division of the tithes among the Levites would be according to the amount received from the surrounding farms of the Israelites. Remember, the Lord is their inheritance and all land belongs to the Lord. We must always consider how verses point to Jesus Christ. Verse 34, but the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold for it is their perpetual possession. Here comes a new word, migrash or common land, which henceforward is going to become quite common in the Bible. It signifies pasture land. Numbers 35 will detail the measurement of land reserved outside of every city of the Levites to be used as common land. This land belonged to the city and its inhabitants in perpetuity. And because it belonged to all within, no individual had the right to sell a portion of it. Nor could the city as a whole opt to sell any or all of it, because it didn't belong to them any more than it belonged to their posterity. Therefore, it could not be sold in part or in whole. The word migrash comes from another word signifying driving or casting something out. Therefore, this land was for the driving of herds which belonged to the Levites within. The land is mine and I give it to you. It is for your use, for life and prosperity. In following my laws, you are to remain true. You are to deal with this land in all sincerity. Each precept given is done so with intent. You are to adhere to my word in all dealings of the land. Under my care is found this special arrangement. Each precept is pure, and so follow each command. In the redemption of the land, there is much more. There are hints of the Messiah promised long ago. What he will do has been anticipated since ages before, but in the days yet ahead, through him, redemption I will bestow. Our second thought today is care for the poor brother. It's verses 35 through 38. Verse 35, if one of your brethren becomes poor, the law of slavery, including Hebrew servitude, follows on to the end of the chapter. But before the commands concerning that are given, we have these four verses which are provided to preclude that from being necessary, if at all possible. 
The words are speaking of Hebrews only here. Please note that. If you're following along in the King James Version, you need a pen and ink correction of their translation. That'll come in another clause. In this first clause, the individual is identified as one of your brethren. It is referring to the redeemed people of Israel. If one of them becomes poor, the Lord would desire that they have their plight corrected. He further defines what that means. Verse 35 continues, and falls into poverty among you. The Hebrew here is idiomatic, bringing in a new word, mot, or waver. A literal rendering would be, and wavers his hand with you. It gives the pitiful sense of someone who has lost the strength of his hand to simply support himself. Everything he touches falls into ruin. It seems obvious that such a person would have already attempted to rectify his lot by selling his inheritance until the time of the year of redemption, the year of jubilee, but even that didn't pan out. Such a person is a perfect candidate for next selling himself into servitude in order to simply survive. If such occurred, he would be in that position until the time of release as well. In hopes of avoiding such misfortune and loss, a different course is sought out by directing the Israelites to simply be merciful to this poor guy. Verse 35 continues, then you shall help him. The Hebrew reads, then you shall strengthen in him. His hand is wavered without strength, and that is to be corrected by strengthening him with one's own hand, building him up and meeting his needs. It is a verse of expected mercy towards the poor wavering soul. Verse 35 continues, like a stranger or a sojourner. Ger vetoshav, stranger and sojourner. The King James Version incorrectly inserts the words, though he be a stranger or sojourner. The first clause has already identified him as a brother, meaning an Israelite. It should only say, as a stranger and a sojourner. In other words, in Leviticus chapter 19, it said this, And if a stranger dwells with you in the land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The law has already shown that Israel was to provide for the stranger or sojourner among the people. How much more willing then should the people be to help out a brother who has fallen on great misfortune? His loss of land has put him in the same state as any stranger among the people, and maybe even in a worse state. Israel's being instructed to open their hand to such a person. To fail to do so would be a flagrant disregard for the high moral principles of the law towards one's fellow man. Verse 35 continues, that he may live with you. To keep him from unnecessary servitude and to ensure that he could live among the people and be a productive citizen, every means of help possible should be made available. Verse 36, take no usury or interest from him. Two words are used in this clause, neshek and tarbut. Neshek has already been seen in Exodus 22, verse 25. It indicates interest on money, and it literally means to bite. Just as a snake bites causing pain, so interest is something which bites at another. This was forbidden in any amount to a fellow Israelite, and it was allowed in any amount when to a non-Israelite. The second word, tarbut, is introduced here, and it's only going to be seen one more time. It signifies increase. It comes from rava, which means to multiply. Hence, this is a multiplication of something. What is generally believed is that unlike usury, which is interest on money, this is a type of interest on goods. In essence, I will give you a bushel of wheat, but you must return one and one half to me when payment is made. A passage which deals with exactly what is forbidden here is found in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. The people mistreated one another, charged usury, and caused great consternation to arise in those who returned from exile and who had hoped to start it anew in the land of Israel. Verse 36 continues, But fear your God, and fear your God. The meaning of this phrase should be obvious. But because of the fallen world, we all have misconceptions about father figures, we all have misconceptions about our relationship with the Creator, and we all have misunderstandings about what it means to have a reverential fear of something. An electrician, from the very first day of training, is taught to fear electricity. And yet, from the first day of training, he is told that electricity is our friend. Both are true at the same time. It all depends on how one treats their friend. As an enemy, a guy right here in Sarasota years ago 
was working very close to a high-tension wire with a hammer. He lifted his arm back in order to make a strike with the hammer and touched the high-tension wire, and the electricity went through him and blew off his opposite hand, right at about this point in his arm. As a friend, electricity gives us light, it gives us heat, it gives us cooling, fun on the internet, like joining in with the superior word while we're streaming online, right? And a million other helpful things which make life convenient and more productive. And yet, if one lets one's guard down about electricity, it can bring a quick end to it all. Had the electricity not blown off that guy's opposite hand, it would have destroyed his internal organs and it would have killed him. The Lord is God. He redeemed Israel in order to show them good. He set them apart with many glorious promises and assurances. He also gave Israel these laws and precepts to ensure that they pay heed to what is right and good. The Lord is a friend to Israel, but the Lord is to be feared by Israel. To fear one's God, then, is to admit that he is in control, that he works by certain laws, just as electricity does, and when those laws are violated, only disaster can be the expected result. Even to this day, Israel has failed to see the significance of this truth. The simple lesson of electricity, which they seem to understand and to apply with all care, is held in higher esteem than the far weightier lesson of fearing God and holding reverence to his being. But not to be too down on Israel, the same is true with the church at large as well. Our lack of respect for the Lord and his word places us in a very, very scary position as a group of people. I actually fear, when I was typing this, of the people that are in churches that are condoning things which this book explicitly forbids, thinking it's okay, God has changed his mind. I, the Lord your God, do not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, until tomorrow, and after that, no more, right? No, it says forever. His word is an extension of who he is, and we treat him lightly and cavalierly at our own expense. Israel did that, and they found out the consequences of it. The seven letters of the book of Revelation will take you five minutes to read. And if you read them, you will get the good and you will get the bad of every church, every single church. There's one church that he doesn't explicitly rebuke, but all of the churches are given some note of warning that you better take heed and you had better pay attention. This is the holy God that we are serving here. Verse 36, that your brother may live with you. The words of verse 35 are repeated here again. The intent is that Israel would care for their financially weakened brother so that he could continue to live among them, not under them. Should this course of action not be taken, the Lord would be displeased and the man would become subject to the humiliating state of Hebrew servitude. For this reason, verse 37, you shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. The two areas of increase which are explicitly forbidden are again noted, neshek or usury, and a new word which is very similar to tarbut of the previous verse, marbit, again meaning increase. They're both forbidden. No profit was to be made off silver or other commodities when helping out one's neighbor. Instead, the people were to lend freely and expect nothing extra upon the return of the principal. And so, with a clear and precise statement as to why this was to be, the Lord closes out this short set of verses with a statement of perfect justification, beginning with verse 38, I am the Lord your God. In all of our verses today, the only time that the word God has been seen is in these four verses about the poor, and he's said it three times. And the name Jehovah, or Lord, likewise is only seen here. It is a clear indication that the Lord is tying in respect for his sovereignty over the people with tending to the poor among them. He begins this verse with Ani Yehovah Elohechem. He is Yehovah and he is their God. They had agreed to this sometime earlier when he appeared while giving the law. They had continued to agree to this at several times and in several ways. They had placed themselves under his authority and agreed to comply with his will for them even in advance of all that would be said. Verse 38 continues, Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Therefore, after stating his name, he relays to them again the reason for obedience, which he has given several times now. He says it is he who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He ties his redemptive act of bringing the people out of bondage in with their need for full compliance on this. 
They were slaves, and he redeemed them from that slavery. Now he is petitioning the people to act in a manner which reflects that same goodness through tending to those who have become poor. They were in double distress in Egypt. That's the meaning of the name of Egypt, double distress. They are to act in a manner which emulates their God. They are to extend to him a hand of relief. This is actually reflected in his next words. Verse 38 continues, to give you the land of Canaan. Not only did he redeem them out of slavery, but he did it with a goal in mind. He would lead them from slavery to Canaan. This is the third and last time that Canaan or Canaan is to be seen in the book of Leviticus. The name Canaan has several possible meanings. One is a merchant. Another is servant. But the word itself is derived from the word kana, which signifies to humble. It comes from a primitive root signifying to bend the knee. This gives the sense of bringing into subjection. Therefore, at least for the immediate context, we can see that a hint is being given with his mentioning the name of the place right here in this verse. A brother has been humbled, and the Lord is asking those of his people who see this to act in a manner which is humble and to show them kindness. In humbling themselves, it is a sign of agreement that they were once humbled, and they are now looking favorably upon the one who has found himself once again in such a lowly state. They had done absolutely nothing to merit redemption from Egypt, and they had done nothing to deserve entering the land which was promised to them. Each step has been an act of grace, and so they were to acknowledge this and to display every single level of kindness to one another, thus reflecting what they had been granted. Verse 38 finishes with these words, and to be your God. Not only is he their God, but he promised to be their God. His care over them would not end at the border of the land, but would extend into the land itself, and it would extend for all times from that land. To be their God signifies prosperity, blessing, protection, security, and so much more. The promises of the Lord would all be realized for Israel when they paid heed to his word. In these verses are some of the most fundamental words of what it means to reflect his kind and gracious nature, and this is what is expected of them. The Lord's care for the poor of Israel extends today for his attentive care for the people of his beloved church. Though at times the Lord may appear distant or uninterested in our affairs, that is the furthest thing from the truth. He didn't come and walk among Israel in order to simply experience what it felt like to walk and to talk and to laugh. God knows all things, and so he already knew what it meant to do those things. He doesn't need experiential knowledge in order to know. He just knows. Every smell of every flower was designed by him because he knows. The reason he came to dwell among us is because without doing so, there would be no redemption of man. It was theologically necessary. It was a necessity for Christ to come as a man in order to redeem us. And it was necessary that when he did, that he would need to die as a man in order for the redemption to come about. Otherwise, there would have never been access to God's paradise. Instead, there would only be separation and condemnation. The coming of Christ shows us that God is not at all uninterested in us. Instead, he is minutely interested in us to the finest detail of our existence. If you come to Leviticus and you find anything but absolute attention to the plight of fallen man, you've missed the big picture. This chapter on the year of Jubilee and every other chapter found in this book as well keeps showing us the wonderful truth that God is there, that God cares, and that he has it all figured out. Be of good cheer and know that what Leviticus points to is one very good end for the people of God. But each step is given in order to get us there. The year of Jubilee and all that it entails is a marvelous part of that walk. I would hope that if you're out there struggling with theology like I struggle with doing these sermons, burdened with trying to cross every T and dot every I, that you will simply step back and take a breather. There is one gospel. It is very simple to understand, and its effects in your life are eternal. So let me tell you now, then you can work on all the T's and all the I's that you want. But first, know that the necessary ones have already been handled for you by God. He sent Jesus. It's all been revealed in these passages. I mean, since the very first sentence of the Bible, it's revealed. But if you keep going through the Bible, 
point by point by point, and you get to the, uh, what is it, the book of Leviticus, and you get to the first chapter, and you start looking, and Jesus is there, and then the second chapter, Jesus is there, and the 15th chapter, and I mean, just everywhere. He's just all over it, including the year of Jubilee, because somebody had to redeem fallen man, and that's what the year of Jubilee points to, and that's what the redemption of property points to, and that's why a house in a walled city is only redeemed after a year, because human works are involved. There is no human work involved in the redemption of man except the human work of Jesus Christ, the God-man. And that is what the Bible teaches us. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ came born under this law. He was born under this law given to Moses and the people of Israel lived by. And they all failed at it. But he was born of a virgin. He didn't inherit Adam's sin. And so he could potentially take away the guilt that we bear because of that state. And living under this law, he did it perfectly. He never violated the law in any way at any time. That's what the Gospels are there for us, to show us that. And then he gave up his life, as the book of Leviticus shows us, the doctrine of substitution. Here's an animal. Here's me. I'm going to put my hands on this animal, confess my sins, and its blood will be shed. And in that act of substitution, the animal takes my sin away for another year. And we have the covering, the atonement. We have all these things that keep picturing Jesus. Well, he gave up his life something that the blood of bulls and goats could not do. It was only a picture of what he would do. That life was given up in exchange for our sins. He was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again, proving that he is the God-man, proving that he had no sin of his own and that he could take away our sins if we simply do one thing, is to receive what he has done. It must be received. It cannot be head knowledge. It must be heart knowledge. It must be, Lord God, I understand that I have sinned, that I have offended you, and that Jesus Christ has come to take away my sin, and I receive that. And if you accept that premise, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. That is the gospel. It's not mere head knowledge. There are people out there that say that you don't need to receive Jesus Christ. That is absolutely false. You need to receive Jesus Christ. You can have all the head knowledge in the world about electricity and still go blow yourself up if you put your finger in the socket. It's the same thing with God. We must understand that he works by certain rules because he's God. He doesn't change. Okay? Call on Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God the Father through his shed blood. Okay? I need some help. Somebody. Somebody. I need some help. Closing verse. Before we get there, Revelation 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. If you overcome, you call on Jesus, you will receive that benefit. It is done once and forever. You are eternally saved and you will eat from the tree of life. And guess what the tree of life is? It's a picture of Jesus. He's the tree of life. Everything about the Bible points to him. Okay, here's where I need some help. Next week, Leviticus 25, 39 through 55. It's all about freedom and liberty, you see. It's entitled the year of Jubilee. Thank you. No Jay here today. That'll be our 48th Leviticus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, here's my point. I give you one point each week because you're not going to remember 10,000 things. You can always go back and read the sermon. But one point you should remember, the title deed has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Our redemption is done. It is eternal, and no works are involved in obtaining it. Christ has done it all. If you are still trying to work your way to heaven by saying, I need to be circumcised, or I need to do this, or I need to do that, that's pictured in this passage of Leviticus, and the Lord rejects it. He is telling you that everything for your redemption is done in his son. No works involved. Do not believe any teacher, preacher, pastor, priest, poet, or anybody else that will tell you that you must do something to please God. That is the first lie of the devil, and it is the one that continues on in almost every possible denomination in the world. It's certainly in every religion. There's only one faith that says that you were saved by grace through faith, and that is the biblical model of Christianity. Please don't ever be swayed by that. You're going to move away now, right? You're going up to Kentucky, and you're going to get a church up there, and you don't know. You might have a pastor that you really like this guy, and all of a sudden he starts giving you a little bit of, well, you need to do this, and you need to do that. Don't listen to that. You are saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and by that alone, okay? I have a poem for y'all and we'll be done. It's called Of Property and the Poor. 
The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Please understand. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, so you are told, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem it what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, no longer facing depression, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, so you see, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released, then he shall return to his possession, his time apart from it shall be ceased. If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it, so I submit. Within a whole year after it is sold, within a full year, he may redeem it. But if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently. To him who bought it throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. However, the houses of villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in their cities of their possession, so I say, the Levites may redeem at any time. It shall be this way. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee, for the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel, as stated by me. But the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession, so you have been told. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, sad but true, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, this you shall not do, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. Such shall not be. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt the land to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So these things you are to understand. Lord God, in Christ, the world has been redeemed. Our faithful brother came and dwelt among us. When all hope was lost, or so it seemed, you sent your son to purchase us back. Thank you for Jesus. And so help us to remember this thing that you have done. Help us stretch forth our own willing hand. Help us to be gracious to each and every one. Soften our heart and help us to understand. When the need is seen, may we not be slack, but give willing hearts to every one of us. Not because we must pay some debt back, but because of gratitude for our full redemption found in Christ Jesus. And may this bring you glory now and forevermore while we praise you here and upon that heavenly shore. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father. Thank you that uh, the book of Leviticus ties perfectly in with the book of Revelation. You make it so easy for us to do a sermon on these verses because it's all laid out there somewhere in your word. It may not be easy to give the sermon, but it sure is easy to put it together knowing that you have given us all that wonderful information. Thank you that you promised that you would redeem at the beginning. You showed how it would be done here in Leviticus. You showed in whom it would be done in the coming of Jesus Christ, and you have shown the effects of it in the book of Revelation. It's all one whole. It's all united, and it all points to the wonderful, marvelous, beautiful work that you accomplished when you sent your son to live and die for us. Thank you, God, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it is in his perfect and beautiful name that we pray. Amen.